the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. This is your hour when Orlando Magic Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. Welcome again to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. <clears throat> Always so pleased when you join us. So is Pete Paquetti's our engineer this morning, Andrew Hurdliska, the producer, and Oz Guinness is the guest in McLean, Virginia. Always pleased when a new book comes out. It's called Signals of Transcendence, Listening to the Promptings of Life. Oz, welcome back to Orlando. It's uh, so nice to hear your voice. Well, it's a great privilege to be back home with you, Pat. Thank you. How did this book come about? Well, this is an idea by my mentor academically and my friend, Peter Berger, who points out that many people, you know, we hear a lot about the so-called religious nuns and people leaving the faith and the advance of secularism. But the fact is that many people are experiencing these deep experiences which puncture whatever they believed before and point them to something which, if true, would make all the difference. So the book is 10 different stories of people, some atheists, some various positions, who've all experienced these things and become seekers, and most of them also eventually coming to faith. As you open up the lights of home, Malcolm Muggridge, tell us more. Well, Muggridge, most extraordinary story, you know, he went to Cambridge and considered education a waste of time. Mm. He was the first journalist to go to the Soviet Union and see through Stalin, when even the New York Times and others were taking Stalin seriously. He was disillusioned with politics. He went to India to look at religion and came back totally disillusioned with religion. So when World War II broke out, he found himself in a pointless activity in the east coast of Africa, monitoring German shipping. And one day, with stale beer and stale smoke, he said, he considered there was only one death he could procure in the war, his own. Mm. So he decided to commit suicide. And he undressed and swam out into the ocean. Mm. Life was meaningless. But just before he sank, he happened to look back, and he saw the lights of the little cafe in the little village he'd come from. And for the first time in his life, it struck him as home. And it said it was like life shining in a prisoner's cave. And he turned around, swam back, and he thought, I must search for the reason I know intuitive there is home, despite the chaos of the world. And it was actually many decades later that he became a Christian. But that experience, those little lights that suggested home in a homeless universe, turned him around. What a great story. Let's go to uh, every mother's comfort Peter Berger. Well, that's uh, Peter's own story, and he starts with what's really an archetypal thing. You know, child awakes in the night with a bad dream or frightened by this or that, and starts crying. And a mother instinctively picks up the child and says something like, it's going to be all right. Everything's all right. Now, Berger says that's so elemental and ensuring, but if you think about it, not actually necessarily true. Eventually, the mother's going to die and the child's going to die. This world is a risky, precarious world. Now, how can a mother say that? What's that intuitive sense that there is order and meaning in the universe despite everything? And he explores that and shows how 
Actually, that's made possible if you come to know that God is there, and the universe has order, and all in the end will be well, despite the evil and so on. And Berger explores that as another signal of transcendence. Now, I want you to talk about Cries to Heaven, Cries for Hell, W.H. Auden. Who is he? Pat, that's my favorite of all the stories in the book. Really? You know, when he left Oxford, he was one of the greatest English-speaking poets of the last century. And he was a hero to many. He was an atheist. He was gay at a time when it was most unfashionable to be gay. And he was a radical on the left. And he fought against Franco in the Spanish Civil War. But then, of course, as World War II approached, he and his gay partner came to New York to escape the war. And, you know, there was no television in those days. So you wanted to watch what was happening. You went to your local cinema to see the week's Pathé documentary news. And he lived in the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And unbeknownst to him, most of the audience were German. Now, of course, to be fair, the war had broken out. British were fighting the Germans. But America was on the sidelines. So the Germans supported the Germans and so on. Well, the documentary one night was on the siege of Poland. And Nazi stormtroopers were bayoneting women and children brutally. And the German audience were back in their own side. Kill them, kill them, they cried out. Orden sat there in the darkness. And he said in five minutes, his atheistic worldview turned upside down. First, he said, I knew there was evil in the human heart. But then the real problem, he said, I had to say Hitler was absolutely wrong. Not relatively, not wrong because he was a German and and Orden was, no, no, absolutely wrong. I couldn't say that as an intellectual, he said. There were no absolutes. He said, I left the, he said later on, I left the cinema a seeker after an unconditional absolute and met Jesus. Mm. And many people today, you think of all a passion for justice after, say, the killing of George Floyd and so on. Many people can relate to that. Yes, things are unjust, wrong. How can you say so? You need an absolute in which to say so. But if God is dead and there's no truth, all you have left is power. And intuitively, that cry of injustice and the need to be right to say wrong cries out for something more. My guest is Oz Guinness. He's in McLean, Virginia. We're talking about his book, Signals of Transcendence, Listening to the Promptings of Life. Oz, tell me about heart-cracking goodness. (laughs) Philip Halley. Well, that one, that is almost the opposite. Philip Halley was Jewish, grew up in Chicago Mm -hmm. in a rather violent neighborhood, And when World War II broke out, he was uh, sent to Germany to fight the Germans and to help liberate the death camps. And for more than 20 years, he became a scholar on the atrocities of German doctors. But as he got into the Nazi evil more and more, he got more and more depressed. And one day after 25 years in service scholarship, he thought of taking his own life. He went down to his study, left his family looking at all the books he'd studied on this range of evil over the years, and he saw a shelf on the resistance he'd never really looked at, picked up a little booklet, thought he'd read that. And as he did so, he thought, my word, i got a fly in my eye. <laughs> and he brushed it with his finger. It was a tear. Mm. And what he was reading, there's a story of the resistance of the Huguenots, the French Protestant Christians, who had rescued 5,000 Jewish children, the safest place for the Jews in Nazi-occupied Germany. And as he read the story, he said he was polaxed by their, quote, heart-cracking goodness. So with Auden, there was the horror of injustice. For Halley, it was the incredible goodness of these people in the face of the darkness of evil. And his heart was cracked open. And he reversed course and didn't take suicide, didn't commit suicide, and came back to a robust faith. Wow, what a story! <laughs> yeah, and you can see the link each time, Pat, between these. In other words, the stories. My book is not an argument. It's not you read a chapter, are you convinced, or you read the book and you agree. No, no, they're just stories. 
of people who had these experiences, and they triggered incredible uh, uh, searching in their mind. It punctures what they once believed and points to something else which, if it were true, would make an incredible difference. So they become seekers. Now, we're getting into some really real meat here. Stopped in his tracks by a dandelion, G.K. Chesterton. I love this one, too. Chesterton was a great journalist, an extraordinary writer. And he grew up in very comfortable circumstances in the west of London. And when he came to university age, all of his friends went to Oxford and Cambridge, but he was an artist. So he went to art school, the Slade School of Art in London. And it was rather like the modern, postmodern climate, debunking, deconstruction, pinnacle, bitter. And he, as they said, was flirting with the occult. His worldview was very, very dark. But he said, as he looked out on life, he was, quote, stopped in his tracks by a dandelion. There was, there was blackness and ruin and darkness in the world. But even the little weed, a dandelion, was beautiful. And so he says, now, how can I explain both? Not just the dark, but the light, and both of them together. And it was some, a number of years later, he began to see that in the biblical view, in the Christian faith, the Jewish and Christian view, you explain both the light because of the glory of God's creation and the darkness because of the way sin and evil have come in. And his excitement was palpable. It's almost like Archimedes leaping out of the bath crying, Eureka, when he saw that the Christian faith explained both. It was bifocal, explained the dark and the light together. But what stopped him and turned him around and made him a seeker stopped in his tracks by a dandelion. <laughs> That's fascinating. Well, folks, my guest is Oz Guinness, prolific author, author of this new book, Signals of Transcendence, listening to the promptings mm. of life. Uh, we need to take a break here, and when we come back, uh, we're going to jump right into topic number six, Joy with a capital J, C.S. Lewis. I can't wait to hear this one. Uh, <laughs> folks, my name is Pat Williams, and every weekend we gather like this to talk with a wide range of interesting guests. We've been doing this show for many, many years, and I'm so pleased always when you elect to join us. Um, we always strive to have the most interesting guests for you that we can possibly find. So, just a reminder, this is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's AM 990, FM 101.5, The Word. In Orlando, we'll be right back with Oscar. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Oz Guinness, uh, the prolific author, is with us. He's in McLean, Virginia. And Oz, as mentioned, Joy with a capital J. <laughs> Tell us about C.S. Lewis. Well, this surprises some people because, of course, C.S. Lewis, through his books like Mere Christianity or the Narnia Chronicles, is so well known as a Christian thinker and a Christian spokesman. People forget that for many, many years, he was a hard-boiled atheist. He really started to doubt the notion of God when his mother died of cancer when he was nine. And then he went to school where it was confirmed, and then he went out to World War I. And the carnage and horror of the trench warfare and all he saw just confirmed his atheism. The world was a bitter place. And of course, when he went to Oxford and to teach at Oxford, he knew many of the leading atheists in the world. But what shook him as he said, was his experiences of being surprised by joy. He mm. couldn't explain it as an atheist. It wasn't pleasure. Pleasure is a matter of the five senses. It wasn't happiness. Happiness is a matter of your circumstances all coming out well. It was joy. Joy went beyond. An unsatisfied desire, more desirable, he says, than any satisfaction. And he was absolutely captured by this idea there was joy in the universe. How could he? He couldn't explain it as an atheist. 
So for more than 10 years, he became a searcher, looking at this, looking at that, slowly becoming nearer to faith. And it was many years later that he said he became the most reluctant convert in England. But what set him off, those experiences of being surprised by joy, which as an atheist, he just simply couldn't explain. I wonder how many people have been impacted by that little book, Mere Christianity, that he wrote. <laughs> well, thousands and thousands, Pat, and you know them, like our dear good friend Chuck Colson. Yes. He was one. I myself uh, came to faith, not only, but partly through that book. I, I love the book. You know, for myself, I was reading on the atheist side, people like Nietzsche and uh, Camus, who's my hero as a teenager, and Sartre, and then on the other side, G.K. Chesterton, Pascal, and C.S. Lewis. Mm. But it was mere Christianity, which I found absolutely fascinating. But people forget he's so powerful, a Christian spokesman. They forget that he was a pretty hard-boiled atheist. Oz, I want to hear about the haunting caricature, Windsor Elliot. Now, Windsor's the story of a fashion model. He fell into modern, he went to USC, actually dated Tom Selleck at USC, and fell into modeling as a summer job on a whim and did extremely well, left college and went to San Francisco, Toronto, Paris, uh, Paris and then New York and found herself on the front cover of Vogue many times. And at the grand old age, I think 19 or 20, was engaged to a young French baron who was a multimillionaire and the same age. So the world was her oyster, and everything lay before her. But, you know, she and her fiancé would go to Paris for the weekend, like people going to the Hamptons for the weekend. And he was a friend of the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, Pablo Picasso, and people like Salvador Dali. And one weekend, she was in Salvador Dali's apartment, which was really kind of ground zero surrealism. The men with Nero jackets, gold-encrusted collars, and the women with all sorts of fancy things, some of them with even antlers in their hair. But in the middle of all these celebrities, Dali had his pet cheetah, a painted ocelot. And suddenly Windsor saw this animal, beautiful, lithe, jungle animal, but it had been declawed, defanged, desexed, de-everything, and it was pacing through the guests on the end of a diamond-studded collar and leash. And suddenly, it was as if this incredible animal struck her as a caricature of whatever it was born to be. And then she looked at the people, this surreal set of people. She thought, I would, so are we a caricature of whatever we were born to be. And her whole atheistic worldview fell through. And it was as if an abyss of meaningless opened up. And she said to her fiancé, we've got to ask about the meaning of life. And it was the experience of that little Peter that set her off on her search. And eventually, in her case, she came to face through watching Billy Graham at Madison Square Garden. Mm. So the story was quite extraordinary, Pat. One day after two years, I mean, she didn't know any Christians. She was sent to this, that, and the other mediums and so on. One day, she couldn't find anything. She walked up Park Avenue, and she said, God, if you're there, I can't find you. You better find me. Mm. And six months later, her mother, with whom she had tensions, had people in her apartment. They were looking at her portfolio of pictures. And the young couple gasped. And uh, Windsor said, why you got? Oh, she said, that's not a very good photograph. I, they said, no, no. This may surprise you, but we are Christians. And six months earlier, we were in Seattle going to a prayer meeting, going to get some coffee in the supermarket. And the Holy Spirit said to us, buy that magazine, Vogue, and pray for the girl on the cover. And for six months, they'd prayed for the girl on the cover, that photo. And that was the very time Windsor had cried out, God, I can't find you. If you're there, you'll have to find me. But it was the little cheetah and the caricature of what it was supposed to be that struck her and stopped her in her tracks. Now, Oz, I want you to get into this one. The Truth We Face Alone, Leo Tolstoy. 
Well, Pat, as you know, many people, whether at school or university, have read Tolstoy's books, War and Peace, and the Karenina, and so on. But, you know, when he was 50, he was the most famous novelist in the world, immensely wealthy, a huge estate, thousands of serfs, 14 children, and a happy marriage. Mm. But suddenly, for all that, he realized mortality. What did what he was doing add up to in the light of the automatic death that was on the way to him? What meaning was there left? And it was that sense of mortality which crushed him and made him a seeker. And his famous book, Confession, tells you all the search that he went through. But it's the sudden sense that for all his brilliance, all his fame, and that you know of all people in Orlando, you've known many of the most famous celebrities of your world. And so many of them reached that point. You know, I had CEO saying, I climbed the ladder and found he was up against the wrong building. Or people say to me, I remember Silicon Valley one night when I was speaking, you know, there must be something more. Six people said that to me separately in one evening. Mm. And you, you know that well of celebrities who know there must be something more. In other words, life's prompting, in Tolstoy's case, mortality, death, made him suddenly realize that all the fame, celebrity, and success was nothing unless he answered the challenge of death. If love is not forever, <coughs> Whitfield Guinness. Now, my grandfather, but that one's a little hard to explain because the story takes too long to tell. But my grandfather, one of the very first Western doctors in China, found himself in his 20s in charge of a small group of Westerners in the Boxer Rebellion. And for several weeks, they had hair-raising escapes, inches from death, as the mobs went after them. And when he escaped from that, which is an extraordinary story I tell in the book, he met my grandmother. Of course, you think your grandparents as old people, but they were in their 20s then. And my grandmother was a very beautiful young Swedish aristocrat. And they fell in love. And I have in my study, not far from where I'm sitting now, the first Christmas card my grandfather gave to my grandmother. And he wrote simply, we don't know whether it's his original idea or he got it from someone else, to one who is dearer than life with a love that is stronger than death. Mm. And in the extraordinary crucible of death, risk, violence, murder, you know, thousands of his colleagues were killed around him on the same day and he survived. Suddenly, what love meant was everything. And again, you think when people fall in love, it goes beyond cliches and Hallmark cards or the goes beyond the shallowness, say, of the hookup culture. And I love the old pop song. If love is not forever, what's forever for? Mm. There's something when someone really loves someone else, when they fall in love, you know this is so deep, it defies mortality itself. Now, what grounds that? You can't look at the Buddhist understanding, the Hindu understanding, or even the Muslim, you know, in, in Islam, God has a hundred names, but not one of them is love. But the one thing we're told in the Bible, God is love. And so if you start thinking about something as simple and profound as love, and very few people don't know that, haven't had that experience at some point, what grounds it? In other words, there's the signal of transcendence, beep, 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 beep. Where does it lead? Where does it point? If there's something that gives you a foundation for it, the whole of life is different. And so signals like that become signals of transcendence that puncture what people believe and point them to something better. Oz, <clears throat> we have 30 seconds. Your postscript, ah. your postscript, time for an awakening. Tell us more. Well, the overall effect of the book, and we haven't time to explain it, we need an awakening. The modern world's been described as a world without windows. It's as if we're in Plato's cave. These signals of transcendence puncture the cave. There's sunlight outside. 
And if ever our world needed that awakening to see not just individuals like the stories in my book, but the whole of Western culture, the whole of American society needs that awakening that's faith. Oz Guinness has been our guest. His book, boy, it sounds like a great one, Signals of Transcendence, Listening to the Promptings of Life. Uh, This is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We're going to be back with more here on AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Stay with us. We'll be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Oz Guinness, our guest in that first segment, talking about his new book, Signals of Transcendence, Listening to the Promptings of Life. Well, we go from McLean, Virginia, where we found Oz, to Dothan, Alabama. Adam Davis is our guest, former law enforcement officer. His book is called Unconquered, Ten Principles to Overcome Adversity and Live Above Defeat. Adam, nice to catch up with you. Hope you're doing well. Oh, Pat, thank you so much for having me on and uh, doing very well and hope the same for you, my friend. Adam, the introduction to your book is called Don't Underestimate the Battle. Uh, What does that mean? I think a lot of times, well, let me just speak to my own experience. When I went to deal with the pain of my life, uh, trauma, however you want to label it, kind of think, okay, well, we can go talk to somebody or we can address this and everything's going to be fine. Um, it may take years. It may take a lot of grit. It may take a lot of, a lot of fight. Um, and, you know, and the story in that introduction was given to me by a World War II veteran I encountered uh, throughout my time in law enforcement. Uh, the Battle of Peleliu, and it was um, it really left a mark on me when I started thinking about the undetonated explosives that a lot of times we have in our life. And sometimes that looks like unforgiveness. Sometimes it looks like pain that we've tried to ignore. And when we go to deal with it in our own power, that battle is going to be immeasurably more intense than it would be if we depend on the power of the living God to sustain us and, and guide us through Your first principle, acknowledge the pain, but seek the healer. Uh, Fill us in. You know, I tried to deal with this on my own for more than two decades. And when I say this, I mean childhood sexual abuse. And I'll just leave it at that. Um, I tried to deal with it my own power, like I did everything else that comes along in life. Um, The day that I surrendered my life to Jesus, and I started letting him do the work in me and guide me and lead me. Things began to change. We can ignore it. As a little boy, I was told to stay away from the guide wire in the yard, which was, you know, the cable running from the power line at an angle down to the ground, oftentimes covered with a yellow piece of plastic. And I went over and played around that and got my arm cut. Well, I knew that if I went and I told uh, my parent at the time that I was over there, I was going to probably get a whipping because I was just told not to go over there. Mm. So what I did was I grabbed some paper towels and some duct tape, and I wrapped that joker up. Uh, at the end of the day, it needed stitches. Mm. It was it got badly infected. And if I would have just went and told them about it, we could have got it treated, and it would have been okay. A lot of times we do that with the pain that we've experienced because of our own decisions as a consequence of those decisions or the pain that we experience in life. And instead of taking it to the Father, letting him deal with it, letting him address it, letting him do the healing, um, we try to deal with it on our own. And it just it gets exponentially worse. And you can't live a life of victory. You can't overcome adversity in your own power. You can try, but to no avail. Let's get to principle number two, controlling yourself. Yeah, you're responsible for your behavior, for your for your response to um, to pain. You can't control anybody else. You can't control how anybody else treats you. You can't control the events of life. I mean, life just sometimes will turn on a dime. You can't control it. 
And a lot of the things that you've experienced in life, you can't control, but you can control how you respond to those things. And you're 100% responsible for uh, taking care of yourself, for seeking the healer, for doing things the right way, for seeking help if you need it. And I'm coming to you as a man who has experienced some deep pain in life, um, and that can cause, you know, a great burden, or it could be something that can be used for good. And so my hope today is that that people understand you're not responsible for other people. You're responsible for your own behavior, for your own response to the pain, to the people that have hurt you, and you're responsible for taking care of yourself. And if that means get some help along the way, do it. Don't let pride stand in the way of greatness. Mm. Now... Principle number three, now is the time. Yeah, that means do not delay. <laughs> it means do not delay. You know, uh, for me, I delayed it for a long time. I got married at 18 years old, uh, carrying quite a bit of pain, carrying quite a bit of hurt, heartache. And and, and I talked about that to my wife, I mean, before we got married. Um, but... You know, there was there was a stoke who said, understand your past and live this moment, dream your future. A lot of times we can't live this moment or dream our future because we haven't dealt with the past. We haven't dealt with the pain. And there's so many people. I think there was a number of research statistics that 70% of Americans will deal with a traumatic incident in their life or traumatic event in their life. Now, not all of those incidents or events will lead to something called post-traumatic stress, and not all of them are going to be major incidents. But a uh, a car accident could be traumatic for somebody, or it could be, um, you know, something more significantly more severe uh, or comprehensive. And dealing with those things is essential, you know. And and don't wait twenty years. And if you have waited twenty years, don't wait twenty years in a day. Uh, address it today. You're created for more. You know, carrying the burdens in your life right now in your own power. Well, this is a great place to stop, take a breather, rest in him, and and instead of trying to carry it on your own, another step. My guest is Adam Davis. And Adam, principle four, faith to forgive. Probably one of the greatest ones uh, that I could have probably written an entire book on. Forgiveness is hard. Forgiveness is a choice, and it is seldom a one-time event. It is something that you have to be intentional about, something that you have to do out of obedience to the Father, to the Word. You have to do it out of obedience to Him and do it in faith. You're not going to feel any different the first time, more than likely. Uh, but you don't. You, you know, it also doesn't mean that you're going to. You have to become a doormat for the offender. You don't have to put yourself back in that situation again. It doesn't always lead to reconciliation, but it is the first step to healing in your own life. And I've been on both on both sides of the issue of forgiveness. I've been a recipient, and I've been one who has had to forgive. And uh, for more than two decades, I carried hate, resentment in my heart, deep hate. And I'm going to tell you something. That will destroy you faster than any other decision in your life, refusing to forgive, carrying that hate. It's going to keep you from being a champion. It's going to keep you from being a winner. It's going to keep you from living unconquered. It's going to keep you from being the best, and it's going to keep you from living that John 10, 10 life. Jesus said, the enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but I come that you might have life and life to the fullest. If you want to live life to the fullest, no matter what walk of life you're in, it starts with emptying that pain, emptying that hate, emptying that uh, that resentment and unforgiveness and letting him deal with it. It's not condoning it. It's not dismissing it. It's not saying everything's good and okay, and I, you know, I agree with what you did. It's saying, I'm going to put you in the hands of my Father. I'm not going to hurt you. I'm going to give it to him. I forgive you. Adam Davis, former law enforcement officer. He's in Dothan, Alabama, talking about his book, Unconquered, Ten Principles to Overcome Adversity and Live Above Defeat. Principle number five, you call it policing your thoughts. What's that mean, Adam? 
I love to start with 2 Corinthians 10.5 from the New King James Version. It says, cast down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Uh, Christ, I'm sorry. Um, you know, there is tremendous power in what we think, in the thoughts that we, we entertain, the thoughts that we give power to. Um, and we look at the violence that's going on in the world today. We look at the things that are going on. And it's easy to see those things and begin to be taken captive by fear, by anxiety. Um, but the reality is there's an enemy that wants to destroy you. But there is a Heavenly Father who is significantly more dangerous to that enemy. He cares for you. He loves you. And so I think for me, we have to look at the standard, the standard of what we judge our thoughts by, whether we're worried about our finances, whether we're worried about our relationships, our children, whatever it is, health, you name it. Whatever we're entertaining thoughts about, the standard for me is Philippians 4.8. It says, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things of good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. If the thoughts do not align with that verse, then they need to be challenged. And taking the time to challenge those thoughts and understanding that those thoughts will eventually become what you talk about and eventually lead to behaviors and decisions, and that has a tremendous and profound impact on your life. Change your thoughts, align them with God's Word, and you'll change your life. Now, <clears throat> tell us <clears throat> about uh, principle number six, the significance of surrender. Father's Day four years ago, 2019, I believe it was, we went down to the beautiful Gulf Coast of Florida. Uh, my family sort of took me captive that day and said, we're not going to do anything but relax on this beach. And we get there, and I get out probably waist deep. I got a big uh, inflatable inner tube, and I'm relaxing, and I look over, and there's a lady uh, who's probably in her mid-50s, um, and she is obviously in distress. Her head is popping up out of the water, and she's going back under. And um, uh, I later found out the gentleman who come to her aid, uh, who was also in peril, was her husband. They were from Louisiana. And so I went over and I gave him an inner tube. And shortly thereafter, I found myself in a very uh, distressful situation because I was being taken out by the rift current. I thought that I was strong enough um, to save them, to help them. And I was now the one who needed to be rescued. Adam, hold your and thoughts. Had- we got to take a break. I want you to finish this when we come back. <clears throat> this is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's AM 990 <clears throat> and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. More with Adam Davis. First, these messages. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Adam Davis is our guest in Dothan, Alabama. Adam, I want you to pick up exactly where you were before the break. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. So I was the one who needed to be saved. And um, I never had any formal training on how to deal with the rip current or lifeguard training or anything. But this little voice clicked inside my head and said, just relax. And... You know, I was thrashing, I was fighting, I was beginning to panic, I was beginning to lose my breath, and I could see glimpses of my wife and children standing on the edge of the shore at the beach, and they were looking out, looking at me, and these other people had their smartphones out recording, and this little voice just said, relax. And so I kind of got on my back and, and just tried to float a little bit, and it carried me to the shore. And I think a lot of times... We try to fight what God wants to fight for us. And instead of kind of being still and surrendering the battle to him, surrendering the, the struggle to him and, and letting him lead us, letting him carry us, we try to fight what was meant for him to fight. It was never a battle for us to fight. And so surrendering that pain, there's tremendous significance in that. You know, I think James 4, 7, submit yourself then to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee. It begins with submitting to God. And, and, and allowing him to carry you. I made it to shore that day. I was exhausted. 
and I was a little angry at the people who were recording me instead of coming to help me. Um, and there's been a lot of people who have died trying to help people down there. And I'm grateful that he taught me a lesson in that incident. And that it, that lesson was to surrender to him, and he'll carry me no matter what's going on. Now, <clears throat> Adam, talk to us about principle number seven, relational power. We are meant, we were created for community. We're created for community, and we need people in our life that are going to speak truth to us. First uh, Thessalonians 5.11 says, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you're doing. Um, I remember having a conversation with one of my friends uh, who wrote the forward for this book, retired Navy SEAL, Marcus Luttrell. Uh He had introduced me um, at this big conference up in New Jersey, and uh, he had a conversation with me, with me earlier, and it was just essentially reminding me of who I was. And... Uh, I think a lot of times pain can cause us to forget who we are. We, it can cause us to sort of experience, I guess, an identity crisis, you could say. And and having friends in your life, whether it's a friend like Marcus or your spouse, a pastor, a brother, somebody that will speak life into you, we need people that are going to challenge us. And I have something here that's called uh the four degrees of relational power. We need relationships that challenge us. We need relationships that empower us, relationships that influence us, and relationships that support us. And and if those relationships don't meet those four degrees, then maybe it's time to consider making some distance between you and that relationship, especially if they're toxic, if there's always gossip or negative or they're uh, stealing energy, they're always, you know, bringing poor mouth to you. It's something that you have to consider. Is it is it making you better? You know, I have a neighbor that's retired law enforcement, and I say your friends are supposed to make you better. If they're not making you better, they're not your friends. And so, consider the people that you have around you. You need to have people in a foxhole with you when battles of life come that are going to support you. They're going to stand with you, and they're going to encourage you and challenge you. And when you're living in sin, they're going to call you out. Adam Davis, our guest, the book Unconquered. Principle number eight, Adam, the mystery of purpose. Explain. Oh, boy. That's, uh, that's another one. That's, uh, that's a little deeper than, than probably I could have, should have fit into a chapter. But um, I think Winston Churchill said it's not enough to have lived. We should be determined to live for something. Um, Psalm 138.8, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, the Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. You know, I look back to to a couple of events throughout my life, and I think about, you know, the day I married my wife uh, in 2000. We were 18 years old. I think about, you know, where I was when 9-11 happened. I think about putting on a uniform and a badge and a gun belt for the first time. I think about my three kids. And I think a lot of times when we consider the topic, the issue of purpose, it's often tied to a vocation. It's often tied to what I do for a living. How do I make an income? And our purpose is so far beyond that. And and I think that that's looking at purpose through a very narrow lens. And, you know, I think about my brother-in-law who passed away, um, I believe in 2005 for leukemia, he was 18 years old and had an organization come to him and said, you you know, you meet anybody, go anywhere, do whatever. And uh, he looked at him and he said, you know, I just want to grow up to be a husband and a father. And I think our greatest purpose in life is to do that, um, which a lot of people will never get to do, and that's to engage with what we've been given, to be a good steward of what we've been given. And my greatest purpose is to love God and to love others, to honor him and glorify his name, to be a good steward of my wife and children because they're a beautiful gift, <clears throat> my friends, my brothers, and um, and to not allow pain to distract me from, from being present in the moment. It's not just a vocation. It's so much more than that. And, and we could go probably a, a long time just on that topic alone, but love God and love others is probably the most simple way to define it. It's time now to move on to principle number nine, 
the antidote for complacency. Yeah, one of the things that in police in, in law enforcement academy when we were trained was, you know, one of the number one killers of cops is complacency. Um, you know, you 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 begin to get soft. You take things for granted. You 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 don't you, don't, you lose your self discipline. Maybe you, you're not going and training like you're supposed to. You're not going to the range. You're not going to the gym. You're not doing the things that you're supposed to to stay sharp. Um, and you know, to to serve in any capacity as a first responder or even in the armed forces, you're required to pass an initial assessment training phase, especially as it pertains to physical fitness, physical agility. And a lot of times, once we pass that, we get through that training, we fail to maintain that. And it's because we lose our sense of self-discipline, we become complacent. We do the same thing in our relationships, in our marriages, we get complacent. We do the same thing in our business, in our finances, our spiritual walk. We lack the spiritual discipline oftentimes to continue growth, continue developing in, in that walk. And I'll tell you, disciplined men are good men. Disciplined women are good women. Disciplined cops are good cops. And disciplined people in general are more productive and healthier people. But uh, often, too often, busy shifts, busy families, busy lives, stress, and a bunch of other issues keep us from maintaining that level of self-discipline that we enjoyed at the beginning of our, our careers. And uh, having that, help, that healthy self-discipline and those good habits, you know, good intentions are great, but they produce no fruit. You know, and we need to be a tree that produces fruit. And producing fruit requires self-discipline. And self-discipline is the antidote for complacency. And having those good habits in your life that are going to produce good fruit, that's where you need to be. Now explain to us Principle 10, an uncommon resolve. I think you have to have an uncommon resolve to win any battle in life, especially one like my friend Houston Gassender. Houston was a Texas law enforcement officer who was shot point blank in the face with a shotgun and, and lived to tell about it and uh, talk about his story in, in that chapter. And, and so many others that I've met over the past decade, people, uh, I know multiple officers who were shot in the face and they lived. Mm. And I think that we have to have, you know, a lot of times we just get too comfortable in life and we seek comfort. And I go to the hospital, I was in the hospital here couple months ago visiting a loved one and they had a, you know, they have on the board, the marker, the dry race board. And it said, you know, goal for today. And that said comfort, comfort reserved for the dying. When we seek comfort, we're, we're literally seeking, um, we're drawn closer to death. And instead of doing the things that are hard and sometimes the hard things are the holy things. And that means loving instead of hating, forgiving instead of resenting. And that means letting go of what, we want to hold on to it's easy to hate it's easy to sin it's easy to uh withhold forgiveness but it requires hard work and, and uh, to do the right things to do the godly things and that is where we have to have an uncommon resolve and we also have to understand that we're not going to allow the things of our past to keep us from a relationship with god we're not going to allow the enemy to come in and and uh, to rob us of our joy rob us of our peace and rob us of the life that Jesus came for us to have, and that was a life that brings him glory, a life to the fullest, which means we walk with him every day, living surrendered, fully surrendered every day to a living God. And having that uncommon resolve says, I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to quit today. I'm not going to walk away from the battle. I'm not going to walk away from my marriage, and I'm going to fight for what matters most. And you have to have that deep resolve, and you have to understand why you're doing it and who it's for. And ultimately, it's to honor God, to bring him glory. And that's where you develop that sort of uh, unconquered mindset, a championship mindset that no matter what happens in life, you're not going to give up. One more day. Adam, there's a conclusion to your book, Final Thoughts on Life, Death, and Eternity. Can you fill us in on that? (laughs) Yeah. um, I'll tell you. There was a time that I would rather have died than lived. There was a day that I wanted to end my life. And it's only because of the living Savior who redeemed me in that moment that I'm here today. Mm. And I want you to hear me clearly that life is precious. Life is so incredibly precious and it is so brief. And if we're not doing something every day for eternity, then what good are we doing? 
it's a vapor. It goes away so quickly in the big scheme of things. Look at it through the through the lens of eternity. Mm-hmm. How you view this life as a choice, it's a mindset, it's a way of life. Look at all that you have to be grateful for. You know, and I know so many people who don't want to talk about faith. They don't want to talk about Jesus. They don't want to talk about eternity. They want to label us as, as extreme or, or whatever else. But at the end of the day, evil has been emboldened in our land. Where's the voice of the righteous? Where's the voice of those who are going to stand up for what is good and what is holy? And, and I'm telling you today that there is, a, there is an enemy who wants to destroy your soul, and he doesn't want to just stop with you. He wants your entire bloodline. But on the other hand, there's a good, great shepherd, and he came to give us life and life more abundantly. And he doesn't come to condemn you or beat you down and berate you. He wants you to, to walk in his love and in the healing that he's given you and given you life eternally. And he's given us access to the comforter, Holy Spirit. And you can walk a life of freedom, free from the pain that you've endured and experienced in life. And this is a brand new opportunity. And I'm so thankful that Jesus set me free. Adam Davis has been our guest. His book, Unconquered, 10 Principles to Overcome Adversity and Live Above Defeat. Thanks for joining us today on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We'll see more of you next week. It's AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Have a great week ahead. God bless. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at this time where faith comes by hearing. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.